the pipeline metaphor, I think, is outdated. You know, we here at UCLA propose the highway metaphor with multiple on-ramps and off-ramps. That's really the way it should be. It should have multiple on-ramps and off-ramps. And even sometimes some people can get off the ramp, but then get back on at a later stage, right? Um, so that's really how I think we need to address the physician-scientist decline. That's Dr. Olujimi Adjajola. Today on Behind the Microscope. Hello everyone and welcome back. I'm Bijan Sadie and this is Behind the Microscope, a podcast about the people and process behind the scenes of science and medicine. Today I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Olujimi Ajajola to the show. Dr. Adjajola is a leader in physician-scientist education and directs both the PSTP and MSTP at UCLA. He earned his BS from the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, his MD from Duke, his PhD in molecular, cellular, and integrative physiology from UCLA. He completed residency in internal medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital followed by fellowships in cardiology and cardiac electrophysiology at UCLA. Today, Dr. Adjajola shares his thoughts on how and why we train physician scientists and what needs to change to keep the workforce robust and relevant. I have been looking forward to this interview for years, and it did not disappoint. Without further ado, it is my honor to introduce Dr. Olujimi Adjajola. I knew from a very young age, I think I was about nine, when I realized I wanted to be a physician and that was sort of always the the driver. And, you know, as I was navigating the path, I realized that one of the things you needed to do uh, to, you know, sort of make yourself an attractive candidate for medical school was to try several different things, one of which is research. And to that end, I, and I always, you know, tell people this is that, I saw a flyer on the wall for a paid research position, which was uh, an NIH supplement uh, position. And I thought, well, what better way to accomplish, you know, you know, sort of introduction to research and to do research and also, you know, than to get paid for it. So, so that really was sort of how the research piece started is I took this flyer and I, I went to different labs and I said, hey, did you know that if I did research with you, um, you'd actually get paid and I would get paid too. Um, and so I actually now had labs actually sort of trying to woo me um, to join them. And ultimately, I picked the microbiology lab. And um, I also coupled that with a distinguished majors program. So, you know, sort of long story short, my my you know, my my PI in the lab, her husband's a physician scientist, uh, was an MD-PhD, and so she had him come and talk to me about doing medical school and research. Unfortunately, my research in that lab didn't go well at all. I was trying to knock out a gene that actually turned out to be lethal in these H. pylori bacteria, so it was like banging my head against the wall. Um, and ultimately, the thesis I wrote, I felt, could have been better. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe this research thing isn't for me. 
Um, but I think deep down inside, I, I still wanted to leave the, the possibility open. So I went off to medical school at Duke, which has, as you probably know, a year carved out for research. Mm-hmm. And so I tried my hand at research again. And this time it went a little better, um, but still, you know, a few sort of key pieces were were missing. And, and so then I, I went off to residency and then it was sort of really during residency that I started to see more and more models of successful mm. physician scientists. And, and I think really just um, um, solidified the decision that, you know, I really should give this a good shot. And if I want to do that, I probably should get sort of formally trained uh, to do research. And so... The only program in the country that allowed me to get formal research training integrated with, you know, cardiology fellowship was basically here at UCLA, which is mm. a STAR program. Um, and so I came to UCLA, joined the STAR program, um, did my PhD in molecular cell and mm. integrative physiology, and then it just went fantastic. Uh, and 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 the rest is history, as they say. And and so that's that's sort of really the, the stories I, I just surprisingly was bitten by the research bug and and finally once I decided to commit I think um, things things went really well mm-hmm. it's interesting story and I think I um I think a lot of us can relate to it I, I I certainly started out thinking you know I wanted to be a physician I wanted to go to medical school and in that process of applying and thinking about what's going to make medical schools want you, you think I should do some time in the lab. Um, And it sort of sneaks up on you that this is something you actually also enjoy. Um, uh, I want to ask you about your, so you said during residency is when you really saw models of physician scientists that were, you know, doing things that you thought you could see yourself doing in the future in what context did you see them during residency? Was it as your attendings? Were these people that were just like really active academically? And so um, so they were just like bigger presences on, on campus. And, uh, you know, how did you kind of n- connect with them um, so that you knew you wanted to spend extra time during fellowship uh, getting formal research training? Yeah, no, really good question. You know, so I trained at uh, the Massachusetts General Hospital and, you know, and I think in a way you could consider it a physician scientist mecca. Um, basically, many of my attendings uh, were physician scientists. Um, even uh, some of the, you know, the faculty that weren't basic scientists were doing very interesting clinical research or you know other types of of research. And and really that environment just felt like yes we're all going to be doctors, but what is going to be the the sort of the end or the other thing that, that you do? And for, for many folks, it was really very interesting uh, research. Um, it was also an environment, not that Duke and University of Virginia didn't have um, really academically um, sort of inclined and driven people, but it was just sort of the combination of being in residency with all of these talented people, some of whom had done a you know ton of research in the past and who were embarking on research careers. It just sort of felt like a wave, you know? Um, and so, you know, so that, that it was sort of a combination of that, the faculty and also my my peers. And, you know, and I, I thought, wow, all these people are going to do research. I certainly love research. I haven't had the greatest experiences. So how can I enhance, uh, you know, uh, my research experience? How can I get a positive experience? And I thought just, just sort of being formally trained was was the right way. 
I think the key thing that you're pointing to a little bit is community, that there's like yes. a, a a quorum of physician scientists or people that are also interested. And that's probably more unique to MGH than, you know, other places around the country. Um, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And, and I think, again, it, it sort of wasn't even particularly that that specifically that people are going to do a type of basic research or another. It was really just this environment where, like you said, this community where folks are dedicated clinicians and very, you know, really driven to, to learn clinical medicine. But at the same time, also this key curiosity and 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 sort of you know piece of investigation that people were so pursuing um and and you know I, i'm sure we'll get to it maybe at some point in that conversation but i think community is very very important i think you need to um sort of see others doing uh, uh similar things to what you're doing yeah absolutely i think it's otherwise you have no idea what this job even looks like it it feels and the training to me still to this day feels sort of diametrically opposed, you know, that there's like the science, right? Or yeah, that it's, it's totally different. And so without seeing that people can do these two things together, right. um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's tough to imagine you know, doing yeah. this. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the star program? Um, maybe just a little bit broadly for people that sure. don't know about the star program and then what did that look like for you in fellowship? Right. Yeah. So the, the star program is, uh, you know, a program to which I think I, I owe a great deal of whatever I've, uh, accomplished and, you know, the idea with the STAR program, I was started by my former department chair, uh, Alan Fogelman, and uh, uh, and my now colleague, uh, Linda Deemer. And the idea, you know, sort of emerged from, from the fact that Linda had pursued a traditional MSTP, a traditional MD-PhD program. But then her clinical training was so long that by the time she sort of was joining the faculty, I think what she had done, which is very niche, um, was sort of really not necessarily as applicable. It was sort of, you know, and, and she sort of changed fields. And so this idea occurred to her that perhaps another way to supplement the physician scientist pool is to have people train later and then train closer to the um, uh, specialty or subspecialty mm -hmm. that, that they will work in. And and in addition to that, the idea was just was not that they just came into a lab and just did a little bit of pipetting and then went off somewhere. It was really to uh, create this this intense training, you know. And 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 so the the types of recruits that came through were MDs like me who then were trained, uh, uh, essentially did research towards a doctoral degree. And um, it, there are a few key facets, which were that, you know, they had to really meet all the same requirements that everybody, that anyone else would meet for a PhD, um, independent of the fact that they're uh, physicians. Um, uh, the, the PhD could be done in any department um, in the, on the entire UCLA campus. Mm. We could go to engineering or go to the business school, you know, uh, to do your PhD, mm. for example, is really this, this broad, um, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, just this broad possibilities. 
And, um, and, and then you sort of integrated it with your training, meaning that you didn't silo your clinical training and your PhD yeah, training interesting. The two were interweaved, which is how you function as a faculty physician scientist, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and, and then the other thing was sort of that there was this community, again, coming back to it, of trainees at the same level doing the same thing across specialties, across you know, um, uh, disciplines even. So, uh, you know, I, I think it, it really just, um, and, and to address the the second part of your question, which is what it looked like for me, you know, I think for me, it, it felt like exactly where I needed to be. You know, I was doing research um, uh, towards, uh, you know, cardiovascular medicine, electrophysiology, but at the same time, taking care of patients as a fellow, so not as a medical mm -hmm. student or as a resident, as a fellow, which is, you know, obviously a lot more advanced. And so it, it created this environment where what you're, you know, investigating, you're really thinking about how to apply it at the bedside mm -hmm. and vice versa, right? You know, um, and so for me, it, it the way it looked was uh, my entire first year was uh, all clinical. But once that first year was over, I essentially did a couple months of research, uh, a couple months of uh, clinical medicine. Um, but the total breakdown was that um, after that first year, I spent about 70, 75% of my time doing mm. research and then the rest of the time during uh, clinical work. So I'd go in the lab for months at a time and then sort of step out for anywhere from two to six weeks mm. for clinical work. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and I did that for a few years, but that it really, you know, I think just helped me feel that I could succeed as a physician scientist because I'd sort of trained in doing both things at, at the same time. I'm glad that this mechanism exists in a more formalized way, because when I think about the last generation of physician scientists, so, you know, people who are now in their seventies, eighties, they went to medical school. There was no, there was generally no concept of doing also a PhD, um, but they trained clinically, they went to residency, they worked clinically, and then they sort of integrated research into their fellowship um, right. training. And that was kind of classically how we train physician scientists. And that's how, you know, a lot of the most successful physician scientists got their dedicated research. Um, right. But now we have this sort of different mechanism, which I think is is good for some people and probably not for other people. So because as an, you know, to choose to do an MD PhD when you're 21, 22 years old, like that is a serious uh, commitment that, you know, you're still in your 20s. It's hard to say that you are going to want to do 80, 20 research in, you know, anything when you're through with this program, that's eight, 10, whatever years long. So that's very awesome that it exists. And I've seen it more and more kind of being adopted around the country. Um, how important do you think it is for increasing our physician scientist workforce? Because I think there's a big concern that it's dwindling as some of these older um, PIs and physician scientists retire. That is a fantastic question, and and you know I I think maybe even just taking a step back is is that you I completely agree with you that the traditional 
MSCPRL doesn't work for everyone. In fact, I'm a perfect example of that because I was encouraged to pursue that. And I, I just was, I think, overwhelmed by exactly what you described, this long period of training. And especially since I liked research, but it wasn't really working all that well, you know, uh, in terms of the project that I had. Um, and so having the opportunity to get this, you know, this second or third chance, I should say. Um, so I, I'm sort of what you would call a late bloomer, right? And that's sort of the the, the you know, colloquial sort of uh, description of, of someone like me. But, you know, I agree that what we should have is a, is a series of entry points, right? So mm -hmm. some folks may commit right at undergrad, uh, some may you know, commit after undergrad, some may commit in medical school, some during residency, some during fellowship, and some even during their early faculty years, mm -hmm. right, that they want to be physician investigators. And we need to have paths for all of these folks to enter the pipeline, but importantly, also exit. Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes people get into the pipeline and they almost feel trapped. And there's a lot of frustration that can sort of be pervasive and especially... You know, you know, the way we train is, is a lot of uh, apprenticeship, right? So if you're an apprentice for someone who's frustrated, who should exit the pipeline, but is still in it, or, you know, right. then that you, you see this, this negative, um, uh, you have this negative experience. So, you know, um, uh, and then to sort of address the latter part of your question, which is about uh, dwindling numbers of physician scientists, uh, I completely agree that, you know, the data show that number one. And then we know that the market forces in healthcare are indeed, I think, not the most favorable for physician scientists, mm -hmm. right? And so why not use an opportunity or, or, or take a different approach? You know, the pipeline metaphor, I think, is outdated. You know, mm -hmm. we here at UCLA propose the highway metaphor with multiple on-ramps and off-ramps. Mm, I like that. We're, we're, yeah, we're we're looking to write this up someday soon. So, but nonetheless, I'm I'm happy to speak openly about it here. Is that that's really the way it should be? You should have multiple on ramps and off ramps, and even sometimes some people can get off the ramp, but then get back on at a later stage, yeah. right? Um, so that's really how I think we need to address the physician scientist decline. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. I like what you said about that the ability to get off the highway because yeah. you know. We do focus a lot on how to get more people in, um, but some of the people who are in who don't want to be there, that can ultimately, uh, you know, bring down the uh, at least the morale of the rest of the right. people that are are trying to do this. Um, right. And so, I wanted to ask you, you know, right now, I think that there it's there's a lot of activation energy to get on the highway. Uh, I think there's a few obvious entry points. I think the MD-PhD is one. I think um, uh, research track fellowships are another um, and STAR program is another. Uh, are there other mechanisms for people? Like I'm thinking about junior faculty who sort of are thought to be terminally differentiated, but maybe they want to do basic science and they haven't done basic science are there other mechanisms to help support those people? And if not, what are, do you have ideas about what we should do? Because I think that is 
is a critical, you know, we're going to lose people from 35 on if we don't have a good way for them to um, get into the lab. I agree. You know, sort of two two mechanisms that jump to mind. Um, uh, one doesn't exactly apply to the stage that you described, but I'll mention it anyway. And it, it's also interestingly called the STAR uh, program, but it's S-T-A-R-R, which is the Stimulating Access to Research and Residency. And I think this is the NIH's um, attempt at piloting a program to, you know, address this sort of earlier stage, uh, which is residency. Um, and we can talk a bit more about that if um, uh, if you'd like. But, you know, at the faculty level, I know that uh, the NIH uh, has thought about this. And, and let me digress a little bit, but I'll, mm -hmm. I promise I'll come back to answer the, the question is that, you know, even beyond just looking at um, those who are uh, capable or those who are interested in research and their junior faculty. If you look at <clears throat> what happens to, uh, say, women, for example, or uh, trainees of color, um, there are, you know, a number of challenges and barriers that you know, I don't think we need to, to get into in too much detail that can either force people um, out of the off the highway or like you know sort of cause them to never get on the highway so another way to actually think of exactly what you're describing is not only getting junior faculty in to fill the pipeline but maybe even getting more diverse types of people um, uh, in because you know perhaps they've overcome some of the the barriers that, that forced them out in the first place so um I know that the uh, NIH uh, sort of it's called the diversity supplement, but it's a research supplement uh, to and um, you know sort of um, uh, or it's a supplement to enhance and reentry into research. So there there are a number of uh, sort of um, uh, there, there are a number of different subtypes of people who get who qualify for these supplements. So one are uh, you know, sort of students like myself, students of color to enhance uh, diversity. They have one for re-entry, right? So uh, say someone took time out to have a family, start a family, and then wanted to come back later on. There actually is a supplement that can cover part of their salary, for example, and, and, and you know, kind of reintroduce them back to research, protect their time with the hopes then that they, that they take off. And I think we need more programs uh, like that. Um, you know, um, I think that the idea that once you're a physician, um, you know, you're kind of stuck on this sort of wheel of <laughs> clinical medicine. Um, you know, I, I think we don't want that necessarily to be the pervasive message. I think people need to know that medicine, yes, you're a physician, but it's an avenue for you to do many different things and not only research, but also, you know, policy, government, um, healthcare management, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, that this is kind of some of the bigger picture uh, discussions we need to have. Yeah, totally. I, I agree. I, I think uh, on this podcast specifically, I focus on physician scientists as mm -hmm. in, um, you know, producing original research, but, um, you know, training physicians to be out there in the media and to be communicating with the general public. That's not, that's something we've touched on on a few episodes. And I, th and I think you brought it up, you know, very appropriately that that's like something else we sort of neglect, I think in our, uh, training as 
you know, we, we learn about Krebs cycle, et cetera, but we don't know how to, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> describing the COVID vaccine in a way that makes it not seem like such a scary thing to the general public. You know, I think you can look back at the last four or five years and see that we have obviously failed in yes. in teaching people how to do that. I think that there's lots of on-ramps and off-ramps, but obviously it's easier if you get people engaged in this stuff earlier. Do you think that our sort of medical education system um, gives us enough exposure to these kinds of things? So like basic research or uh, scientific writing or, uh, you know improving our communication skills outside of the clinic? Yeah, I think that uh, medical schools are wisening up to, to this very issue. And I'll, I'll use our curriculum at UCLA as an example. Um, we have just made the transition. I think this is our third entering class uh, of a new curriculum that looks very similar to what I had at Duke and what I know I think uh, Stanford has a, as well. And that's the idea that a lot of what you're learning in the first two years of medical school are, are probably wrong and will change. So why not f teach people how to learn rather than give them a set of facts of which 50% is wrong to memorize exactly. and then sort of try to push, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, as you know, curricula in medical school then is evolving to um, where one year becomes a scholarly year. And, you know, at UCLA, for example, at Duke, it was called a scholarly year. Here at UCLA, it's called a discovery year. And the idea is that, you know, in that discovery year, you are discovering research, you're discovering public speaking, you're discovering business, you know, um, there's an opportunity to get a second degree. We expect some of the students will transition to become MD-PhD students or MD-MBA or MD-MPH. And also baked into that are sort of these um, kind of uh, sort of uh, uh, key skills that you want people to develop, um, you know, how to be a, a mentee, you know, how to be a mentor yourself, uh, et cetera. So I think, I, I don't know how wildly this is catching on, but I, I believe this is the medical curriculum of the future. And I think by so doing, I think that we created a smarter, more culturally competent, uh, more adaptable uh, medical workforce. Which is, which, which is, we have to have otherwise. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you, if you think about this, let me, I'll, I'll say this really quickly is that even just to use the example you raised of, of trust um, in the healthcare system, you know, if physicians didn't just go to medical school and just learn all the facts and which are wrong. And then, you know, like if we actually learn how to communicate, you know, during medical school uh, as an important you know, sort of aspect of what we do, you know, perhaps um, we wouldn't have had such a failure, you know, getting more people to take the vaccine as an example. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I was talking to someone recently who was talking about uh, like systems in, within the hospital and that physicians have taken a backseat to a lot of the administration, business folks, because there's this underlying thought that our really prime responsibility and only focus should be on patient care. Uh, maybe myopically understanding what patient care is, right? That that's, it's not just making sure that your patient's on a heparin drip. That maybe means that the system has to function 
in a way that's patient centered and not centered maybe on, on um, uh, billing, et cetera. And to some extent, I think that the similar sort of um, short-sightedness exists within graduate level education for research too, is that uh, I think there's this thought that your job is to produce new knowledge and that should be 100% the most important thing that you do. And that it's almost looked down on to try to publicize it and popularize it, et cetera. Right. Um, and so I think on both sides, when I think about, uh, uh, you know, in medical school, I think we learn how to talk to patients, but in graduate school, I think we learn how to talk to other scientists, other scientists, absolutely. Right? which is, which is important, but I don't know that that's the most important group we should be learning to talk to. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's undoubtedly in important for one's own success, right? I mean, if, even if you think about the act of publishing, that's yeah. what you're doing is you're communicating, you know, what you found and the rigor with which you investigated it. And, and so that it's, it, it truly, you know, sort of the veracity essentially. Um, but, but it's clear with the way the world is evolving and, and how easy it is to get information and how quickly information moves that, simply just learning how to do science as a as a scientist um and and not thinking about communicating through various media um you know uh, you know one of which is obviously publication and and and, and talks presentation mm -hmm. but also other ways I, I think it's it's really just we're, we're going to lose the uh we're going to lose control of the narrative mm -hmm. and uh we're to where people who are better at those other things, but not science really have the loudest voice. And, mm -hmm. and I think that that would be really unfortunate if that happened. I think we need to be thinking, you know, there's this concept now of competencies, right, in medical school mm -hmm. and, and in graduate school, which is what are the things that you expect a competent physician or a competent scientist to be able to do? And it certainly goes beyond just being able to do science. So I, I think we need to bake these things into, into the curriculum uh, a lot more. Absolutely. I, and I think it's, I think that it's starting, I've seen it starting. And even since I, you know, started training not that long ago, it has changed that I think that, you know, the um, distrust of the COVID vaccine um, as a singular example was uh, eye opening to a lot of people that, Yes. You know, um, so I want to talk, I think this is a good transition to talk a little bit about your role overseeing the PSTP and MD-PhD programs there at UCLA. Um, how, you know, I think it's a very interesting that you can see the spectrum because you see that mm -hmm. first first year medical student come in and you also see that person, at, you know, at the end of fellowship who's like trying to transition to becoming a junior faculty. Um uh, can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? And also, you know, these things that we've been talking about, how, how do you try to bake those things in to this, you know, highway pipeline, whatever that is, right. you know, on average, you know, 14 ish years long. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I, you know, and, and I, I mean, I'll start by saying that I feel very fortunate that I'm in these positions that I'm in. It, it sort of really came out of my passion for 
helping mentor others and, and showing others the path that I took, um, as an example. Um, uh, some of that has to do with um, me being a person of color. It has to do with me being someone from out of country. It has to do with me being a late bloomer, all of those, all of those things. So, you know, I think, it, it, and I, so I feel very fortunate to be able to, I think, have a very broad um sort of span of influence in terms of mentoring and helping so i talk to all sorts of people you know all the way from uh you know i have a in my lab uh, a middle middle school student <laughs> so you know so all the way from people even trying to go to college to people who are looking to you're finishing fellowship and and the star program and joining joining faculty so um very rewarding um and i feel that i'm i'm able to have a broader uh, set of perspectives and experiences from which to uh, advise people on. So, uh, so, so that, so, so with that said, you know, um, I, I think that that broad view is also what sort of allowed myself and my colleagues to think about, to, to rethink the metaphor for physician scientists training into these highways. And so one of the ways that we, I think one thing that we do at UCLA to bake all these important elements in is that our program doesn't have a rigid structure. We're not taking people and then forcing them through this thing that we have and seeing what's happening at the other end. Rather, what we have is really a framework that enables us to really individualize the training, hmm. right? So her, there's certain things that everybody gets, but that's actually a, a relatively small um, portion of the program. It's really the mentorship and the advising and really, you know, because, you know, I've, I've seen things where people write about their careers, very successful people, and and it's never a straight shot for anyone. And I, right. and I think that our advising allows us to, you know, individualize the training plan for each person um, and help bake in for each person, the the key elements of the two the skills that they need for what they want to do. Um, so you know, I think that sort of served as a um, a very positive outcome for the long view that we've taken at UCLA and, and having sort of this this broad overview of physician scientist training. Yeah, that's. I think that's so important. We been talking about how long this pathway is and for it to be a rigid one size fits all uh just doesn't really work for right exactly so that is awesome um the PSTP as a um sort of like institutional framework to 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 support physician scientists after gra undergraduate medical uh -huh. training is you know, I mean, the basis for it, it is it been there for a long time, but I think only in the last five, 10 years have we seen it pop up at, at you know, almost all of the major academic institutions in the country. Um, I want to, uh, be, because there are a lot of smaller ones popping up, I just wanted to get your thoughts and advice on what do you think makes a good PSTP and what are some of the things that are um you know that that applicants should be looking for or other directors that are listening to this who are trying to build their program should be aware of that that makes a PSTP not just a good experience for the people training but also 
like effective at producing physician scientists that can go on and actually support themselves as, as a, well, you you definitely are not asking easy questions. So <laughs> I will say that. <laughs> Let me start there. Um, you know, this is this is a, a very very important point. I agree with you that there is a very important role for PSCPs, which is that you don't want to have spent all this time training MD PhDs and then you just let them off into residency and then whatever happens happens right so i, th I think everyone agrees that you're better off being in a in a program that sort of still helps structure your clinical training and your research training in a way that you know um, uh, you can continue uh, in the path and and reduce attrition by the way that's uh, sort of the other but so when it comes to PSCPs you know the uh, uh, a number of us uh, through the Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine got together some years ago, and one of our objectives was to define what a PSTP is and how it differs from a research and residency, for example, or or even just a residency program that has people doing research in it. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think we could really agree on <laughs> what a PSTP was. And and perhaps, you know, there, there are a number of ways to go from that statement. And, and I don't know that I'm necessarily endorsing one way or another. But but nonetheless, I mean, what I can say is that for students that are finishing MD-PhD training and are wondering, okay, what PSTP should I, or, or, or how do I pick a PSTP? I think the few key things that you want to ask are, um uh the, the following you know and i'm and i'm going to start you know sort of from the end of uh uh of training you know up, up to the period of training and you know the i think for me the first key question is who have you graduated and how are they doing you're right that PSTPs haven't been around for that long, right? So, you know, some of you, you might need to tailor your outcomes to the correct time period. But you want to see that the graduates are continuing in uh, research or uh, if it's not ultra basic research, that is clinical research or doing some scholarly output, right? That That is a, a reasonable metric. Um, and then... Then the question is, how did they get there? What are the things you're doing in the program? So, you know, what is the mentorship like? That's kind of one of the most important things is, is the mentorship. What is protected time like for research? During residency, you don't get that much time for research, right? So um, is what options are there to find a mentor that you then, you know, work with during uh, your protected research phase, um, as an example? Um, there are things like what are the educational enhancements that you have for me? What is my ability to go to conferences? What is my what is to go to conferences? What is my ability to, if a question comes up, um, um, identify uh, the right mentor to help shepherd uh, this idea? Uh, to what are the various training options that you have? If I change my mind from direction A to direction B, you know, can you accommodate that? Um, and then what is the community like? That's come up a few times now. Are there like-minded trainees in the program that where I don't feel like the lone wolf uh, trying to, you know, pursue this, this path? Um, and then, you know, uh, then it, it sort of sort of sort of trickles down from there. But, you know, my opinion is that the key things are mentorship, support, uh, protected time for research and, and outcomes. Um, and, you know, a few other things in between that, but I, I'd say those are the broad uh, categories I'd look at. 
Yeah, I think those are, I mean, that's obviously critical and mentorship, you know, I don't know how many of these episodes we've recorded, but, you know, we never get through a single episode without people saying, you know, I had good mentorship or I had bad mentorship, but either way, it, 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 it (laughs) dramatically influenced the um, direction of their career. Um, Absolutely. To talk about your point about protected time and to kind of shift gears a little bit, um, you are a practicing electrophysiologist. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Okay, that so is correct. <laughs> I wanted to ask about this because, um, uh, you know, I think there is, if you look at where PSTP, like, wh- you know, which fellowships are most popular, they tend to be like hematology oncology far and away the the most popular but the procedural subspecialties tend to um not do as well among pstp applicants even um and in my mind i always thought a procedural subspecialty would make sense because you can make your salary your hands you know a lot of times you're there getting tissue for example right and so from a research perspective i felt like that made a lot of sense um, but on the other hand, uh, I think there's all of the driving, the financial driving factors that, that either drive people away from procedural specialties, if they mostly want to do research or drive people out of research, because it is so That's much more works. lucrative to Absolutely. just do. So, so can you give me your thoughts on that? And do you think that it's, I mean, you're obviously a proceduralist, you know, uh, a, a, some aspect of your job is procedure. So, um, you know, is there benefit to to pursuing a procedural subspecialty, all things being equal, you know, that your interests are equal between hemonc and GI, but but does right. it does it make sense for someone who's who wants to do 80-20 to actually do something procedural? Yeah, no, I I think this is hopefully not overly philosophical, but I think that the way that we advance uh as a society um uh in science and technology is to allow people to pursue what they're passionate about right and if there are almost limitless possibities then i i in terms of what people can do then i think the outcomes are also similarly limitless um so i think what we don't want to do is to take someone who could be a brilliant scientist but who wants to do something very specific procedurally and then block that door. And that's traditionally been the way things are. As a matter of fact, I actually wanted to be a thoracic surgeon when Mm. I was a a medical student and and do research. And I remember getting the advice that, well, do you want to be a thinker or a doer? Mm -hmm. You know, and I I very distinctly remember an attending at the VA uh, asking me this question. And so what it did was it sort of painted this sort of negative uh, a perception that you know you can do the two and only until sort of later in the career did I feel that I could so yes you're right I'm a, actually a quite busy um, interventionalist in clinical cardiac electrophysiology some of our procedures are shorter some are longer but the reason I'm able to do it is the support system that's mm-hmm. been built here um, and truly my time is protected so meaning that because you see that the, the the way the uh, procedural specialties lose their appeal for physician scientists is that 
you're getting called on your research protected time to do more procedures, right? And especially if you're good, then, you know, right. that, that that's a, a machine that, that sort of never shuts up. Um, and, and there needs to be a support system that allows you to truly be able to do your case on your case days. But then when you're, when those are not your case days, there are other people around. So mm-hmm. in, in our division, for example, we sort of have a four to one ratio of pure clinicians to physician scientists mm. and, and 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 sort of that model is very nicely worked for us so you know on my non-case days i do not have to do a case so that's number one then the other thing is the other sort of you know your patients don't get ill on their on your clinical days only right so right. is what is the support system for interfacing with the patient um initially addressing the questions and only sort of having the more important stuff filter up to you so uh, uh, care extenders like you know uh, nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of another piece of the of puzzle that's baked in. And then community again, right? So I'm not the only physician scientist in my procedural specialty. There are others, and I know how you know I, I see what they do, and I feel this sense of community as well. I think it's very very doable uh, to be a, a proceduralist and a scientist with the support system. And mm-hmm. I think that there are a lot of financial um, uh, sort of, you know, incentives to try to do that. I, I'll, I'll say one quick thing be- before I wrap up is that, you know, on the interview interview trail, when I had proposed to people that I wanted to do research and be NIH funded and do electrophysiology, mm-hmm. you know, a comment that I, that was not infrequent was, well, you're just going to be very expensive. Right. Because, you know, you're we're going to need to pay you as X, you know, whatever procedure. So pay you as a cardiac electrophysiologist, but then you're not bringing spending all your time doing that and bringing in all that revenue. And this is where I think the missions of academic institutions really needs to be aligned with, um, you know, with uh, with what is needed um, Mm -hmm. in society and in the field. Right. Um, And so. there's not going to be one model that fits everyone. And I think physician scientists fill a very critical role that needs to be addressed and nourished, just like pure scientists do and just like pure physicians do. So that's my soapbox. Yeah, (laughs) no, I love it. I was going to ask you that question next was, you know, what what is there? What incentive is there for a uh, academic medical center to pay a proceduralist to do mostly research? Right. Um, and I think that, you know, if, if you look at the n- number of Nobel prizes that have been awarded to physician scientists and, and how important I think physician scientists are for integrating the basic, basic science with the Absolutely. actual on the ground clinical care, it isn't, it is a need that, that is filled specifically by physician scientists. And, um, I, I guess my sort of follow-up is, um, given that maybe hematology and oncology and, um, uh, maybe general cardiology, et cetera, et cetera, uh, people who aren't necessarily doing procedures all the time might have more physician scientists because they can, um, support them maybe more easily. Do you think we are missing out then? Do you think the procedural specialties, and I'm not saying at any one institution, but just across the board are missing out on the sort of innovative potential of having physician scientists within their division? And I think a lot here about surgery, which is, you know, the most proceduralist 
thing you can do. Uh, right. You know, do are are we missing out on having a thoracic surgeon who also studies, you know, wound healing in Drosophila or you know something like that? You know, I I think you know. I would speculate that the answer to that is yes. By nature of being a proceduralist, and you and and you and, and when you do things over and over again, just naturally you think of ways to do it faster hmm. and uh, and and less onerous, right? Like easier. And so, by virtue of being a proceduralist, you're constantly innovating. But I think what you're getting at is a sort of a, a different type of innovation, which is not just an incremental um, innovation because you're doing something over and over again, but perhaps a, a larger leap because you're bringing a completely different area to, for example, um, my research is in neurobiology, but I'm a clinical cardiac electrophysiologist. So my area of work is neural control of the heart. Someone who does ablations and pacemakers all day may not necessarily be able to bridge these two worlds, right? You need a physician scientist, someone someone who's spent time and, and has credibly been trained in, say, neuroscience and, and similarly in, in procedural aspects to bridge that gap. So I think that we are, you know, there's certainly innovation happening, but my sense is that, it, it, you know, if you truly limit physician scientists the way we're defining it, I think that you, you reduce the number of larger leaps that you mm -hmm. can make. I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, and sort of to that point and sort of how I'd like to wrap since we brought it up several times is, um, can you comment on the physician scientist community sort of as a group? Because to me, it always seemed like an incredible source of, of these kinds of collaborations that can occur between someone who studies something completely different you know, let's say in neurology and someone who studies something in dermatology or something, that there is a commonality uh, in our training as physicians, in our experiences in the clinic um, that give us a jumping off point to potentially make more sort of bigger, um, elaborate sort of, uh, um, you know, less incremental uh uh, projects, advances, collaborations, right. advances. Exactly. Um, I always thought that that is to some degree utilized, but to a large degree untapped in our system, because we tend to silo different subspecialties and trainees in say dermatology, anesthesiology, internal medicine, et cetera. And is there potential potentially for bringing these people together with their commonalities of loving research and being clinicians and and doing things that are a little bit more off the wall than just the incremental kind of slog oh, that research is. Absolutely. And and look, th this even touches on a broader thing, which is sort of how we fund research. And even if you look at your traditional NIH R01 mechanism, for example, it's just naturally geared towards incremental um, research. And, and it's almost like we need more high-risk type grants, right, for people to just sort of, you know, kind right. of just throw stuff on the wall and, and see what sticks, right? And, and the entire sort of 
infrastructure around incentivizing what we do focuses on R01s mostly, right? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and so it's almost like the entire system is geared towards this incremental research, which I, I think is a problem. I can agree more that if you just brought people from two very different worlds together and just they just started talking that, you know, that just really magical things can happen. Mm -hmm. And and to me, that's where the biggest advances come, right? Is that, you know, you talk to someone from a totally different field that has a technology that is, um, you know, never been applied in an area and you just come and you ask some simple questions. You know, one one quick example that, that comes to mind is, uh, is uh, you know, a good friend of mine, uh, you know, had this really complex data set he wanted to um, uh, analyze that had to do with, you know, sort of different the activities in different brain regions and literally the person that helped them with the right tool was a geothermal physicist yeah. okay who looked at sort of weather patterns around mm -hmm. the globe and how things and you know and so i think it, it very much gets at your your question is that we we truly need um uh, uh various disciplines talking to each mm -hmm. other one really creative approach that was taken at, at ucla and i know this isn't you know uh, an interview about ucla per se is that you know, we are uh, two deans ago, uh, the idea came up to create these sort of hubs um, that are called themes, um, uh, you know, around, you know, a few topics like, you know, cardiovascular medicine, inflammation and immunity, et cetera, et cetera. But then these pods, these lab spaces uh, were open concept and populated by scientists from very different hmm. disciplines with the hopes that, just going to the coffee machine or the the you know the, yeah. the you know the water machine would get people talking and and so you know that's one thing that we're doing here at UCLA for example to try to really encourage um, uh, the, the, the sort of in interactions that you're that you're describing but you know I'll just summarize that I, I, I couldn't agree more that you need uh, people with vastly different expertise talking to each other mm -hmm. yeah that's amazing and I I think about the example of the way they designed the Pixar campus was that everybody had to exit like at, in the same area. They had to get their mail at the same area. They had to get coffee at the same area. And so your um, uh, animation department and your storyboarding and whatever, the, everybody had to bump into each other. Got it. And, you know, maybe one out of a hundred interactions uh, gets people talking and then you end up with, um, something new and exciting. And I think that research is, you know, full of curious people that are always wanting to talk about something. Uh, so I think that's a really awesome idea. Um, and I don't yeah. think research buildings talking about infrastructure are built that way. They are very much At little all. pockets of right. labs, which exactly. is, yeah. Exactly. And I, yeah, I think as I've gone around giving talks around the country, I see more and more of these open concepts sort of lab designs where you know where one lab ends and the other begins is you know maybe a little bit blurred but but certainly not closed off and, and open and and you know i mean i i think you know you might then ask the question well what about you know someone taking somebody else's idea i think i think that's the minority of, of science and i i think mm -hmm. that sure there are a few bad apples but yeah i think largely it's a very beneficial thing yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Adjajola, thank you so much. This was so awesome. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time and it did not disappoint. So uh, I, I really appreciate the time and thank you very much for saying that. 
All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode. My deepest thanks to Dr. Ajajola for coming on the show and sharing his wisdom and for everything he does near and far for the physician scientist community. Check out his faculty page in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share us with others you think would appreciate this content. And for more from the team here at Behind the Microscope, head to our website at www.behindthemicroscope.com. Behind the Microscope is executive produced by Joe Banke, Carrie Jansen, Michael Sayeg, Nielsen Wang, and me. Our faculty advisors are Dr. Mary Horton, Dr. Brian Robinson, Dr. Talia Swartz, Dr. Chris Williams, and Dr. David Schwartz. I'm Bijan Sadie. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>